Welcome to the Jack Weston MCAT Podcast with your host, Phil Hawkins and Asai Calderon Muñiz. Welcome back. It's been a long time. I don't know if you remember what we were talking about, but uh, I hope so. <laughs> that would require long-term memory, and that is the topic of today. So if you don't remember, maybe you've got amnesia. Um, <laughs> probably not, but maybe you do. And so we'll be talking about that today as well. Um, just a little bit of a kind of callback and like big picture kind of review. I know last week we talked about short-term memory and sensory memory. And so I just want to kind of like recap and recover because today we're going to be talking about long-term memory. But these really all kind of all work together. So whenever you see something, that immediate initial impression is going to go into your sensory memory, which lasts for a second or two. And that's all subconscious. Then it goes to your short-term memory where it's very conscious. You're very aware of it. That's usually where most of our thought resides is in that short term, like holding stuff in our head. Like if somebody tells you their phone number and you're trying to hold it in your head. But what happens if I need to like think about something else or I need to remember something a couple of weeks from now or months from now or years from now? That's the case where we need long-term memory. So there's this process where if something seems important to your brain, your brain says like, okay, we want to hold on to this long-term. We're going to take that memory, put it into long-term memory. That's called encoding. Then we're going to store it there until we need it. And it's just going to sit there subconsciously. We're not aware of it. And then when we need to retrieve it, we can pull that back into our short-term memory um, and so the, the steps there are encoding, storage, and retrieval. And that's something that comes up on the MCAT a lot. And specifically, like things can go wrong with different stages of this. And so it's worth making sure that that you have a good kind of understanding. Yeah. And even though we're doing this podcast mini series in two parts regarding um, the, the formation of memory, it's something that you're going to want to sit down and put together and make sure that you can go back and forth with the information processing model, the different steps, um, and create an outline for yourself. I am a very big fan of outlines, of review sheets, of yeah. notes that help you remember <laughs> what you need to know um, and can practice in a way that's efficient. And so when our brain decides, okay, we are going to form uh, a long-term memory of something, there are different ways that this memory can be formed. It can be formed in a way where we can actively recall it. There are going to be some things that we don't actively recall, but that are still stored information in our minds. And so the category of things that we do actively recall, we call explicit because you can explicitly uh, call them back um, and recall <laughs> them or declarative. And so there are two main types of memories that fall under this category. The first is going to be episodic. And so you can think about this as an episode of something that happens in your life. So mm -hmm. your, uh, in my case, my brother got married. His wedding is going to be an episodic memory for me. I can, I don't have to really think a whole lot about this. It comes to mind and all that's there. Mm -hmm. um, Bill, you mentioned the phone number again. <laughs> We're just talking about this. Our recording of, of the last session got, or the last podcast got this song that has a phone number in it stuck in my head. And as soon as you said that, it just keeps coming back. And so that, even though it was not one time that I listened to, I remember going in a deep dive trying to figure out, okay, did we actually get the full number or not? 
And yeah. that experience is an episodic memory because it comes up. It's something I can actively remember. I remember that instance of that Google deep dive. <laughs> uh, and so that's going to be another one. But it's basically events that we experience and they're specific to our experience. There's also this other category of declarative or explicit memories that are called semantic memories. And so these are more about the general knowledge of the world and their connections that you make essentially as you go through life and start recognizing those different connections. So, for example, um, you can think of red. Red is a color that we have a lot of associations with, right? So, and this is kind of borders, but you can have associations with uh, certain types of flowers. So roses are classically red. Um, love, anger, you name it, has a lot of different associations. You can also think about it on the flip side, maybe pick a flower. And then there are a lot of things that we know about the flower. So we know that flowers are thorny. We have some colors that we typically associate with them. If you're thinking about rose, if you're thinking about something like rosemary, which is one of my favorite plants. Yeah. Um, you can think about tall, right? You can think about fragrant. And these are this is information that we know about this item or this idea that's general knowledge, um, but that builds up as time goes on. Now I really, I really want rosemary. But then, um, we think about these a little bit more to, to make those connections and to pull that memory back compared to the episodic memory. Uh, and so there's a lot here. And most of the things that we typically think about with memory fall under this category. Um, so this is what people tend to be more familiar with. Yeah, it's also the one that's most relevant or at least comes to mind when people are thinking about studying, which if you're listening to this, you probably are thinking about studying. But semantic is just like a bunch of facts. Yeah, comes to mind. (laughs) Um, Semantic is a bunch of facts. Like if you remember Montpelier is the capital of Vermont, that's different than remembering the time I went to Vermont and got like maple syrup and things like that. It's funny. You mentioned rosemary. Uh, I've never told you this, but I had a rosemary plant when I was in med school And I had it for like years and I kept watering it and going through this. And one time my mom came over and she's like, why do you have this dead rosemary plant? I'm like, no, it's alive. And she's like, it's all brown. I'm like, no, it's supposed to be brown. And she just like grabbed the plant and shook it and all the leaves fell off. I'm like, I'd definitely been watering a dead plant for like four years. Um, And I just didn't realize it was dead. Um, But that's an episodic memory, right? Because that's an experience that. Um, was stuck in my stuck in my head there. I am outing myself as someone who does not have a green thumb here. But for what it, I lost mine when I accidentally drowned my mini cactus <laughs> earlier this year. So I'm with you on that. Yeah. I've I've decided to stick to just eating rosemary and not growing it. Um, there are other <laughs> plants that I seem to do better at growing. Um, but this this kind of like separation here is important, right? The difference between the explicit, which is also known as declarative, versus the implicit memory, which is a different type of long-term memory. For me, like what makes sense is like explicit, declarative. These are things you can explain or declare. I can tell you about the story about my mom and the rosemary plant. I can tell you that Little Rock is the capital of Arkansas. I can tell you the alkaline amino acids. Those are episodic and semantic memories. But there's other memories that I have that I can't really explain very well, like how to ride a bike or how to how to like even walk. And I know that that sounds like everyone's like, oh, I can explain how to walk. Right. It's like right foot and then left foot. And like, 
If you never have walked before, it is so much more complicated than that, right? Like you are flexing abdominal muscles and back muscles. And like when you start to accelerate, like when you when you start to walk, you actually lean forward before you take your first step to move your center of gravity, which most people aren't thinking about. When you step forward with your right foot, does your right hand go forward or does your left hand go forward, right? Like which one, like what do you do with your hands? And it's weird because everyone does this, but nobody really knows, like they can't can't really explain it. Because that's, that's because these implicit memories, which are sometimes called procedural memories, um, lie kind of beneath the surface. They are memories that we have, but they're things that aren't super... Um, we're not super consciously aware of them, even when we bring them up. Um, how to speak, right? Like, what does my tongue do when I say onomatopoeia? I have no idea. I just did it, but I don't know what I, my tongue does. Um, and so this is something that's like kind of interesting. And like you mentioned a song and a lot of times songs being stuck in your head, that actually is more of a procedural memory. Um, or there's, there's like, some tangents into this, which is why sometimes if you at, like list out the lyrics of a song and say like, what's the next lyric? Like a lot of people like, I don't really know. But if you sing the lyrics, they know what comes next because it's in my head. It's like the singing thing. And like, I know what to say with my tongue, with my mouth to get the thing to come out next. I always, yeah. Yeah. And it brings us back to what we talked about last week in terms of the types of short-term memory, how they could, you know, be auditory, visual, um, and so haptic. And that phonological loop that we talked about last time yeah. is when when you're talking about, oh, like, you know, some some lyrics you can't really like write them out. If you think about how you might, you can imagine that phonological loop kicking in and um like hearing it in your head and then writing it out. And so there's there's always that connection and we form memories not just in this you know gray sphere but we we form them visually we have visual components to our memory we have auditory components to our memory um, that experience of walking right that that physical action and so there are ways to take advantage of that that we can chat about another time um, yeah I, no, but there's there's a lot there there is a lot there and I know that this sounds silly but a lot of like when I was successful in med school has to do with tapping into things beyond just semantic memory, right? Definitely. Like I, maybe I don't remember if this specific thing was sympathetic or parasympathetic, but I remember seeing it written in blue and I always write parasympathetic stuff in blue. And so that's, that's an episodic memory, right? I remember this experience and that's able to help me answer that question. Or, and I know this sounds silly, but having like dance moves to remember muscles and like what muscles do which dance moves. And like, I just like have these like dance moves and songs in my head, like the Oliquinon and the Hyoid and the Sartorius. <laughs> and like all of those have different movements associated with them, but they like, they just kind of stick in your brain kind of subconsciously. That procedural memory can be really powerful. And even when you're thinking about, so for all y'all future doctors, um, when you're in med school and learning the different parts of the physical exam and what the physical exam tests, mm -hmm. actually acting it out when you're thinking about the physical exam can be really helpful in making that connection very explicit, <laughs> making it very clear for those same reasons that you're talking about, Phil, right? So whenever you go and do an exam for the shoulder and you're thinking about, okay, 
what muscle does it test while you're practicing with yourself, with a partner, or eventually with a patient, say what it's testing in your mind or out loud if you're working with a partner or um, practicing solo. And that's going to help you remember it better. And that way, when you are, you know, when you're, when you have a patient who comes in with a shoulder injury or some shoulder pain or their shoulders a little stiff, um, it's going to be more automatic that you do these physical exam maneuvers because you've already so strongly associated them with the different muscles in the shoulder. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Procedural memory, like saying like it becomes automatic, a lot of stuff, because a lot of that lies subconscious becomes kind of automatic. Um, yeah. If you um, have ever driven a car and you like get into like go somewhere that you don't normally go, but then you accidentally like drive to work or you drive <laughs> to the grocery store. Um, and it's just like my brain was on autopilot and it was just kind of taking me there. And that's because that's a procedural memory, right? You don't think about like, when do I press the gas? When do I press the brake? How do I control the blinker? I mean, you have to think about that when you first start learning how to drive. And it can be very overwhelming because there's so much stuff you have to do and put all those things together. I learned on a manual. And so it's like also other things there. And there's like three pedals down there. My car was really old. So there was a fourth pedal that controlled the bright versus the dim lights. And so I'm like doing all of this weird stuff. I drove <laughs> my first car was a Dodge Dart Swinger from 1970. It said Swinger on the side, which was a little bit weird. Um, but no, nobody, nobody cares about that. There's just an episodic memory that came back for me. But having like things become kind of automatic can be kind of useful. And so I recommend students like think about those procedural memories. Whenever I talk about this, I always talk about the alphabet. And like most people, how they know the alphabet is via procedural memory. Like if I ask you what letter comes after S in the alphabet, a lot of people go, go like A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, N, O, P, Q, R, S, T, 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 right? And like, they don't know it as facts, but they know the song and like the song's kind of automatic. And so by, by learning things in that way, sometimes stuff will just kind of stick and become automatic. Um, I learned how to do the alphabet backwards when I was in choir um, in high school. And like as a result, I, I mean, I don't know the order of the alphabet backwards, but I know that if I say Z, my brain knows what to do with the rest of it and just makes it come out. So it's Z-Y-X-O-V-U-T-S-R-Q-P-O-N-M-L-K-J-I-H-D-F-E-D-C-B-A. I have no idea what, what that order actually is, but this has been kind of like burned subconsciously into my procedural memory. And so it's something that I just initiate the cue and my brain does the rest of the things. And this idea of a cue is also helpful for a different, um, a different, aspect of memory and it's more related to recall and I am pretty sure we're going to chat a little bit more about this at about another time. Future, yeah. Um, yeah, but there there is this idea for you to think about about spreading activation how one memory can trigger some other information that you know. And again, there are a lot of ways to in a sense hack your memory um and to take advantage of the way that our brains are wired, which honestly is really incredible. That doesn't mean it doesn't have faults, though, or that doesn't mean yeah. things will always go perfectly. So you can also have a situation where instead of being able to remember information really well, you're not able to remember information that either you already knew or you have trouble creating new memories. So you can have an issue with um, 
recalling what you already have experienced or creating new memories. And this is called amnesia. And so, Phil, like you said, folks listening probably know about amnesia. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are a couple of situations where this can happen. So if you imagine a traumatic experience, right, you may not remember what happens immediately or what happened immediately beforehand. Um, and so that can interrupt our ability to recall information. You can also imagine a situation where we have more difficulty forming memories. This, as future physicians, is incredibly important for y'all because there are medications that can impact people's memories. And so if a patient tells you, hey, doc, this, this, I don't know, I'm just having more trouble remembering than usual. There are a lot of different ways our mind can go. We might be thinking, okay, how old is this patient? Could this just be normal aging and some normal, you know, extra difficulty with memory, which we know to happen? Is this person at a higher risk of dementia and more significant um, difficulties with memory? Is this, they're just under a lot of stress and having more difficulty forming memories. And so stress can also have a really big impact on our memory. Yeah. Or could this be a medication that they started recently or we changed the dose and now it's at a higher dose and it's giving some more, the, the side effects are more obvious or have just started. And so when a patient brings up memory, there are so many different ways our mind can go, but yeah. we have to be aware of all of the different possibilities that can impact this. That's um, funny. Like as somebody who's spent a lot of time in neuro, my first thought is, physical trauma like did you get whacked <laughs> in the head right like did you fall down the yeah. stairs or something because that can also affect that obviously as well yeah this this definitely goes to our our ways of thinking mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so you can also have a situation where someone has global amnesia and this this can be an incredibly frustrating experience for patients you're a lot less likely to come across this um, unless you know you're a neurologist or you're working in the ED, but even then, um, going to be going to be less likely. But in that case, they're having difficulty with memories both before and after some some event. Um, so again, a little less less common, but still important to know. And then there's also a situation where sometimes, so we think about how we can test this. And you can test retrograde amnesia for for retrograde amnesia by just asking, right? Some information that you know that they should know. And if they can't tell you that fact, then there's some evidence for that. Similarly, if you, you know, try and have them remember something and they can't, that could be representative of anterograde amnesia. There, you have to be careful because there can be instances where someone gives you wrong information and it's not, it's not intentional. They're not trying to mislead you, but their mind is trying to fill in the gaps. And so this is going to be confabulation. And so it's important to recognize that this is not someone trying to be awful and send you down the wrong path. Um, but it's their mind is like, we have some gaps. We need to do something about this. Yeah. So it's a tricky, tricky scenario, a tricky situation. Yeah. Yeah. This, I, I want to kind of like pull this back to what, where we kind of started for a moment with the, like the idea of encoding storage or retrieval, right? Like you are encoding is putting that memory into storage and then storing it until you need it and then retrieving it when you need it. Um, problems can arise at different parts of this. And this is why we have the difference between retrograde, which is, I can't remember but, the past, and anterograde, I can't make new memories. So if your problem is anterograde, the problem is the encoding side of things. Like you can't, I can't make new memories. Versus retrograde could be retrieval or storage. And so that's actually something that's a little bit tricky because 
you can kind of like like think about this encoding storage retrieval as I wrote something down, I put it in a filing cabinet, and then I pulled it out of the filing cabinet when I needed it, right? So writing it down, putting it in there, encoding, leaving it there till I need it, storage, pulling it out, retrieval. If the problem is storage, if all of a sudden that filing cabinet gets thrown away, I'm never getting that information back. If the problem is retrieval, right? Like, oh, like the filing cabinet is locked and I, I can't get it out. I can't, like, I, I know it's in there, but like, I can't pull it up. Um, then if you find the key, you're good, right? And this is why sometimes with retrograde amnesia, when um, we talk to patients, patients will be like, oh, like, is my memory going to come back? Or the family members, is their memory going to come back? And it's kind of like, we're going to wait and see, right? Because a lot of times stuff does if the problem's more on the retrieval side, but if the problem's on the storage side, like it might not come back, which is a little bit harder. Um, I also want to kind of touch on, I think you kind of hinted on this, this dissociative amnesia, like if someone's in like a psychologically traumatic event. And that's also an MCAT term, which is different than retrograde and enterograde amnesia. Dissociative amnesia is when your brain's trying to protect itself by forgetting like anything related to that trauma, right? Like if I was um, like, let's say I was beaten up at a carnival. And so my brain says, nope, we're going to just forget everything about all carnivals ever <laughs> because I don't want to relive that trauma. And so you dissociate from that. Um, but that's different than the like global, like you were talking about where like, you just can't remember anything from the past, which is more rare overall. It's, it's also kind of interesting that, you know, we, we talk about this like interrograde, retrograde, you know, episodic, semantic, like procedural memories. We talk about these mostly like the way we learned about this was because somebody had an accident or somebody had like a tumor or somebody had like surgery that removed part of their brain or where they got like whacked in the head and damaged a certain part of their brain. And so these are all like somewhat separate things. Um, so your problem might be the encoding or the storage or the retrieval, or it could be with specifically like episodic memory or semantic or procedural memory. Note that episodic and semantic are normally stored more in the hippocampus and the procedural. There's some components in the, um, cerebellum. And so if somebody damages their cerebellum, like they might still remember all the stories and all the facts that they need, but they don't remember how to speak or walk. That's one of the most frustrating things for patients because they remember speaking and walking in the past, right? Like I have the memory of these experiences, but I can't do it now. And like, that's incredibly frustrating for patients. And so they have to relearn how to do this, right? Note that like I was talking about walking being something we have to learn to do. That's why babies, they don't just like start walking. Like it takes them like, like months or even like a year to get really good at walking because there's like so much stuff and their brain eventually figures it out and puts it on autopilot like a person driving a car. Yeah. And this should be, you mentioned the the cerebellum and that procedural memory. This should make sense if you've already started thinking about the different parts of the brain, what they are essentially in charge of. Mm -hmm. um, the cerebellum helps us with action, right? It helps us with speaking and that physical component. Both. Same with walking. Yeah, exactly. And so there's that really strong overlap between what it, the actual action and the motion, and then the procedural component that allows for that action and that motion. Um, so that's something else that I don't think we've mentioned in a really long time. You need to know 
the different parts of the brain, the different lobes, the different um, like what they're responsible for, right? Which is responsible for sight versus which one, if affected, would impact someone's personality. Mm -hmm. um, and these are things that are important, not just for the MCAT, but they're also really important in medicine. And not just if you're interested in being a neurologist, it's something you're going to be thinking about regardless yeah. of maybe not dermatology. Yeah. <laughs> but, but like but every other... doctor does a mini mental exam and like yeah. just kind of running through um, exactly. that. I, I worked in an Alzheimer's research project. And so we had some patients, we had some controls. Um, and I had this one patient who was a control patient. And so like he didn't have Alzheimer's, but I was doing like this mental exam with him and I was like showing him images. And I'm like, what's, well, we're testing um, like uh, retrieval of memory. And so I like showed him a bunch of pictures. I'm like, what's this animal? What's this animal? And I like showed him a thing of a camel and he's like, oh, uh, mm. and he like was really like struggling. And I'm like, oh no, like this is a guy who's supposed to be good with his memory. And I'm like, I'm like, do you need, yeah, some do you need some help? Like, what's going on? He's like, no, I just can't remember if the dromedary camel has two humps or one hump. I can't remember which one. I'm like, I'm like, you're fine. Um, like in this case, like I, you you could have said dromedary and I would not have known the answer to that one. Just camel mm -hmm. was good enough. Um, but that's something that I remember specifically from that experience. And I was like, oh, oh, you're struggling over the thing that's not the problem. Uh, but he he's like, oh, they're really testing my memory. And I'm like, no. Just do, do you know that's a camel is what, what I'm looking for. That's a that's a fun episodic memory yeah. to share. Yeah. Um, I do really quickly also want to note that a lot of the testing that we do is very English centered, right? In the sense that there are things that are specific to English that are not applicable in other languages. I recently found out that um, someone in, in one of my classes did an exam with a patient and they were struggling with the months and it's because in their country and their language there were a different number of months and so then it's like okay well is this an issue with you know like their actual mental status or is it because they are not familiar um, and yeah. so this question arises and it's something to keep in the back of your mind as a future physician that language cultural context impacts someone's semantic memory yeah. Right? And so when you're testing these things, keep that in mind. Um, there are a number of tests that are validated in other languages. Validity is a term <laughs> you need to know for the MCAT, uh, both internal and external. And it's it's just something that we have to be aware of. And we're becoming increasingly aware of it. But I just wanted to point that out because a lot of how we test this is reliant on semantic memory. Yeah. Right? And that that can be affected by someone's cultural or linguistic background. That's really interesting. I hadn't really put too much thought into that because everyone I worked with, like I was working in Nebraska, and so it was like pretty <laughs> homogenous culturally speaking. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there might be, I know that there are different um, dating uh, procedures and like dating isn't like what year is it? Like different cultures <laughs> actually use different trackers for what year is it? Is it? Um, or you ask them like, who's the president, but like, maybe they, uh, only watch like TV in their own language and they watch the TV from back home, right? Like they're watching, like, let's say they're from China. I'm just watching like Chinese TV. And like, maybe I don't get a lot of American culture stuff and I just don't pay attention to it because I'm immersed and non-assimilated and that can make things a little bit trickier. 
Um, I know a lot of times some of you guys listening might be like, well, shouldn't they probably still know that? Like, that's when I want to be like, do you know who the who the president of China is? I'll admit, I think there's a president. I'm not even sure there is a president. <laughs> but like, like if that's how we're evaluating your memory, like I don't know some of those things. Um, and so you do want to kind of keep that in mind for sure, especially if you're dealing with um, like a, a more heterogeneous community that you're dealing with. Yeah. And that's something where knowing, having some background is very helpful. If someone comes in, you know, to the emergency room, that's, or the emergency department, that's a little bit of a different story. But if you're caring for a patient, which a lot of you guys will be doing across time, that's a great way to, you know, once you know that they answered it the first time correctly, or that they didn't answer it, and then they suddenly start answering it correctly, you can use that um, kind of themselves as a reference to figure out, okay, how are they doing? Because you're going to have patients that are consistently, you know, with it and and mentally present. You're going to have patients that have some demen- or dimension. Yeah, dimension. I, was confused. I almost confused it with dementia. Dimension of like delirium, this kind of acute transient process. And they might be, you know, mentally present at the start of the day and not at the end of the day, which is a whole phenomenon called sundowning, which is very interesting. I'm going to avoid yeah. going on a tangent, um, yeah. but there's a lot here, not just for you kind of hacking your mind and your memory, but also a lot of implications as a future practitioner and a future doctor. Um, yeah. I was going to say, in case anybody was wondering, there is a president of China and Xi Jinping. Um, <laughs> I know I probably butchered that that like I knew that was the the person in charge, but I didn't know if it was president or what the the role was on that. There is, just in case you were wondering, I had to look that up <laughs> because I cannot live with myself not knowing that. I'm like that seems like something I should know. Yeah, um, but I, I do. I want to talk about a particular case that's kind of interesting with this memory stuff. Um, so there was a a case study, um, that was kind of released about this one patient. His name was H M. Often when we do um, case studies, we just publish initials, you know, to give some um, respect to the, uh, you know, HIPAA side of things. Um, but this patient, I, I, man, I cannot remember. I think that they had um, surgery on both sides of their brain working on the hippocampus. Um, and so I think it was a, due to a tumor um, going through here. But um, this surgery, like, caused anterograde amnesia, where this person could not make new memories. And so there was a research group in Arizona, which is not where this person lived, that reached out and said, like, listen, we really want to understand more about memory. Um, if if we could get, like, this guy to kind of move out here, then we'd be good. And, like, they want to kind of make a deal with that guy, but he won't remember making a deal, right? Because you can, like, make a deal with him, and then tomorrow he's like, I don't know who you are, right? Because he does, he can't make those new memories, um, but that person was married and they kind of like talked to the wife who I think had power of attorney and like in that case. And so um, the husband and wife moved to Arizona and they got paid for this. And like, listen, we'll help pay for you guys to live here. Um, just we just want to do some some research on memory. And so every morning, you know, after they moved to Arizona, they would get up and they would like go for the husband and wife would go for a walk around. I think there was a lake and they'd come back in. And, like, it was weird because if you, like, stood outside and asked the, the husband, like, which house is yours? He would say, I don't know. Also, why is it so hot? Right? Because he didn't live in Arizona, or at least in his mind, he didn't. But 
you know, they'd been there for a couple of years and they'd get up and went for a walk around the lake and they'd come inside and the husband would sit down and turn on the TV and the wife would make breakfast. And one morning the wife was sick. And so the husband got up and he went for a walk and he walked around the lake and he came back home, opened the door, went, walked inside and sat down. And that's kind of mind blowing because this guy doesn't know he lives there, right? Like he, if you ask him where he lives, he's going to give his old address and like, Michigan or Minnesota or wherever. Um, but he was able to kind of like develop these new habits, right? And so the issue was, yes, he had anterograde amnesia and the problem was this encoding, but it was specifically the encoding of e episodic and semantic memories, not the implicit procedural memories. And so he was able to learn new things and be able to go on autopilot right? And develop those habits where he's kind of doing things without really thinking about it. Just like when somebody drives a car or go or like learns to just walk, period, or what, what they do with their tongue when they say onomatopoeia. I just know. I don't know how to explain it. I just do. And it was kind of the same thing for him. And so this is a good example of like one of the ways that we learned a lot about memory. And there's some things that seem kind of counterintuitive often and kind of surprising, like how can this guy walk around the block and go in his house if he doesn't know that's his house, right? But that yeah. actually is what happened with this guy. Um, but you want to kind of think about this because this like separation between these things, you'll see a lot of kind of strange stuff in neuro where things kind of don't make sense implicitly unless you have good understanding of how the memory side of things works. Um, so memory, I know you guys know, is like one of my favorite topics, which is why a lot of my PhD stuff was in memory. But it's this kind of double whammy thing of like all this stuff is stuff that they're going to test you on. But also, if you understand it better, it'll also help you learn better because you can maybe take advantage of episodic and and procedural memories instead of just semantic as you're studying and trying to cram for the MCAT. So thank you guys so much for tuning in, for listening. We have one quick Reminder and announcement, please send us your questions. We are going to do an Ask Me Anything episode. We are itching to do that. We want to know what questions you guys have that we can answer. And as we mentioned before, it can be MCAT related. It can be med school related. It can be related to our application process or just general curiosities that you have. And we're happy to answer uh, because we know that the studying process for the MCAT can be really hectic. And sometimes it's nice to either switch gears, hear about something else, or get some extra information. And we encourage you to take advantage of that. So you can email us at podcast at jackweston.com. You can also, if you are listening on Spotify, respond to the Q&A, respond to the what did you think of this episode um, with some, some questions that you might have. And then if you are on YouTube, you can also leave a comment I don't know that there's a way to engage in Apple podcasts. We'll have to. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> if, but... <laughs> if there is, we are very clearly not watching it. So <laughs> so if you do try to communicate with us that way, we're probably not going to see it. Um, yeah. yeah. So let us know what your questions are. And we're looking forward to recording the next episode for y'all. Bye.